train. I slept like a a baby without colic last night. Wow, got a nice sleep. Sure nice. Well, this is the time of year we start having announcements. We got the feast to come trumpets coming up this next Wednesday. Wednesday the tenth. Feast of Trumpets. So rich in meaning for us and for those of God's people. We'll meet at 1 o'clock is our regular Sabbath time, 1 o'clock on Wednesday for Feast of Trumpets. And then the really good news, the fast of the seventh month is coming up on Friday. Uh, I like feasts better than fasts. I don't don't know what it is, but I just do. God says He's going to turn all these feasts, these fasts we've been keeping into feasts of joy. And I look forward to that day. But this fast, coming up Friday, just uh, since there's no Sabbath in between now, it's about the killing of Gedaliah, the appointed leader of Israel that was left in Babylon. Uh, and... That has been commemorated ever since by the Jews, and not only by the Jews, but God tells us in Zechariah, the end-time church should have been keeping these all these 70 years since uh, the work began to be magnified across the country with Ambassador College in 47, and I believe that is the correct date. And we only started keeping them a few years ago, not realizing that we should have been. But I think that this one has considerable impact. Not only is there a type there, I believe, spiritually in the church, and uh, my feeling from everything I've heard over the years is that Herbert Armstrong literally was killed uh, by the Tkachas and those who were taking over. And uh, it was heard that he told Joe Tkach that night again, for the, several, the umpteenth time, I'll guess, that he had been fired and uh, he didn't live out the night. So, Isaiah 1 does say that there was lying and there was thievery and now murder. So, uh, I think that that portends also from Isaiah 7 that the leaders of our country are about to die as well. Isaiah 7 talks about Christ beginning as a baby. And uh, I looked for more dramatic things, I think, at Passover, uh, looking beyond. But, you know, when Christ was born here on this earth uh, in a manger, He didn't do great miracles from the beginning, did He? He didn't do much of anything as a baby in a manger. Uh, And... It was only after a period of time that he began his ministry and did incredible miracles. So maybe I was maybe I was overlooking something because he said that we would bring forth Christ and uses the analogy of a baby. And he did, I firmly believe, a few small I say small, small by comparison to what's coming, miracles here around Passover time and increased uh, our size and baptisms, which we hadn't seen in years. And I do believe that that was a beginning. 
and that the 65 years of Isaiah 7, when Ephraim will be destroyed as a nation, is drawing to a close. It appears we're in the last year of that. But right below that, in Isaiah 7, it says that before Christ, if he began coming forth or showing himself a bit at Passover, before he is old enough to know good from evil, the nation would lose both her kings. So, and I've said this before, but I, I want to reiterate it since we're coming up on the fast of Gedaliah, that uh, it appears prophesied that we will probably lose our president and vice president would be those that I think uh, would come under that category. And we'll see how it plays out, and I don't know that that is correct, but it appears to be. So, uh, even within the country now, as divided as we're getting, there are already threats against senators, and there have been threats toward Trump. Not as much against Pence. He's not the lead man there, but when these people take over, uh, I'm pretty sure they'll want to get rid of both of them. So, uh, I'm not trying to stir up a conspiracy theory here. I'm just telling you what the Scripture says and applying it to this nation Ephraim. And it does appear that we will lose both our leaders. Uh, so, we'll see what God's prophecies seem to indicate that. And uh, how and when it happens, we'll wait and see. But that seems to be the handwriting that is on the wall. So, don't be surprised. Uh, if things take a downturn and get worse, I mean, isn't that what all the scriptures say? It's going to get worse. <laughs> and the financial collapse will uh, come pretty quickly, I think, now. So, things to be concerned about and watching for and drawing near to God because that's the only protection there is, is God in heaven who has promised that he will take care of those who will obey and worship him. And let's be in among those. And that's what Paul in Romans is talking about, getting into that. Uh, we went through, uh, at the end of last week, chapter 10 of Romans. And I want to go back a little bit, lest our memories not last a week, uh, which they don't always, uh, and pick up the context briefly before we get into chapter 11, because the context of what he's saying at the end of 10 is very important to the message in chapter 11. But he's, he makes the point in verse 12 again and, and 10 that there's no difference then between the Jew and the Greek because God is over all and rich to all that call upon him, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Race means nothing. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Eternal shall be saved. Um, any nation, any people, any human being. And then he says, how then... Are they going to call on God? If they don't know God, haven't known God, how are they going to accomplish that? And then he explains. Uh, how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Most people on the earth don't know about the true God today. Uh, out of nearly seven billion people, very few, even who profess Christianity, know the true God. So how can you call on him if you've not heard of him? And how are you going to hear of him without somebody to teach it? And how will they preach except they be sent? 
And I went over that showing that uh, you cannot call yourself to the ministry. That has to be a calling that comes from God. So it is very, very presumptuous to preach without having been commissioned uh, from on high to do so. And then he says, from those that are sent, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. The, the beautiful feet has to do with them traveling and going where need, they need to go in order to bring the gospel of peace. It's not talking about their bunions, but about the activity that is required to get there. And remember, Paul did uh, walk most everywhere he went, sometimes by ship, but he walked a lot. So did Isaiah, who wrote that in Isaiah 40. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, <clears throat> for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? That's there in Isaiah 53. And then it goes on to talk about Christ and the Passover in that chapter. Uh, and that's what Paul is saying here. You can preach Christ, but who's believed the report? So what Isaiah said when he wrote that was exactly the same when Paul was writing this. And we might say the same thing today. We've been showing these things as they are in Scripture and as they apply to both the church and the nation, but who's believed it? Almost no one. So nothing's changed from Isaiah to Paul to today. <clears throat> but they've not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Oh, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing... The Word of God is what needs to be heard. So he says, how are they going to call on God? How will they know? They won't unless somebody comes and tells them. And then they see it in the Word of God. Then they believe it and come to have faith in the Word of God. And the sound, the things that we're hearing here, are going to go out to the whole world. And they will have that opportunity to hear the Word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went to all the world, their words to the ends of the world. And that has happened off and on throughout history. And he relates that. But I say, did not Israel know? For Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. So who angered them? The Egyptians. A nation that knew not God. So, Moses had a problem with people there who did not, would not believe God, and he came and told them about God. Remember, they even asked, which, who, which God? Who is this God that you're telling us about? So, he had been what? Sent of God to bring the Word of God. And they didn't believe him. Then all the plagues came, and at some point in there, the Israelites began to believe it, and then more plagues came, and then the Egyptians began to believe it. Didn't accept it, but they believed it. Pharaoh believed it. Because he, he started, remember there at the end, he kept saying, Oh no, don't do that. Go and talk to your God and bless me also. Uh, he wanted to be under that umbrella of protection that, that he saw come on Israel. They didn't know God, and then God made a separation 
Then the Egyptians began to say, well, why, aren't, why are they protected and we're not? You know, the world's going to do the same thing pretty soon. God's going to protect his people, and they're going to say, they're protected and we're not. What's going on? And then there'll become somebody preaching, here's why they're protected and here's why you're not. And here's why you're going to keep getting plagues, because you're not listening to what you're being told. So, it goes back to Moses. Then he also includes Isaiah. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest to them that asked not after me. So he's saying, these people have someone who comes to them to tell them things that they would not otherwise know or ever find out. When Isaiah preached and then wrote what Isaiah wrote, he was coming to a people who had lost out, who had forgotten God. So he came to tell them. Well, what did he get for his trouble? Probably split right down the middle, according to tradition. Uh, because people didn't want to hear what he had to say. Now, he said, in Isaiah 40, he wrote, How beautiful to the feet of him that brings this. And he brought it, and it was a beautiful message, but they didn't like it. Didn't want to hear it. Has anything changed? <laughs> no, nothing's changed over the centuries. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched forth my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. They won't listen, they're disobedient, and everything that I tell them, they have an answer for to say why it isn't so. That's what gainsaying means. I disagree with that, and I don't believe it. Uh, and what you're telling me is a lie. Nothing changed when Herbert Armstrong went on the airwaves and preached uh, both radio and television. And I remember him being pretty fiery back in the 50s. I, I, just Ezekiel comes to mind. He was preaching Ezekiel. And very, very powerfully. It was, I mean, Ted came later with platypuses and dolphins and all that stuff. But Herbert Armstrong was giving a pretty fiery message there back in the 50s, early 60s maybe. Um, and it was going nationwide back in the days that you remember when you could drive across the country and tune in the World Tomorrow broadcast one right after the other. You could drive clear across the country and listen to the World Tomorrow without a break, day and night. 30-minute programs on the heels of each other, and many of them being broadcast simultaneously, and some from 50,000-watt clear channels that could be heard over most of the country. And... It was a disobedient and gainsaying people, and only a small amount, by comparison, percentage-wise, were called out of that. So they didn't listen then. And Jeremiah said, I rise up early and go to speak. And God says that in several places in the prophecies, and I think even Moses used that expression, rising up early to tell you and you don't pay any attention. So he says, I've stretched my hands out, all along, in every uh, period of history, 
to a disobedient people. Israel, primarily. Okay, with that background then, let's go to chapter 11, because he asks another question. I say then, based on what he has just said and which I just reviewed, has God cast away his people? He says, I mean, you see some frustration in verse 21 above. I've preached to them, I've sent prophets, they wouldn't listen, they've always been disobedient, and they've always found a way around everything that I've sent anyone to tell them. So Paul says, has God cast away his people? Now remember, Paul said not too many chapters back that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And he names a lot of things that possibly could, but can't, won't. So he asks the question again in a little different way here by saying, well, has God then cast them away because of disobedience? Now he's speaking to primarily a Gentile audience again and saying, you're here, you've been called. Has God accepted you and cast Israel away? We'll see that that's what he means a little later on here in the context. God forbid. Now he's going to explain that God hasn't cast Israel away. So, and he's going to tell these Gentiles, don't get too high-minded and uppity and egocentric thinking he's gotten rid of Israel and now you're the big guys. He's going to make it very plain that that's not the way to go. So he says right off the bat, God hasn't cast them away. God forbid. And he says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And obviously, he uses a personal example there. Obviously, he hadn't been cast away. He was still there preaching what God had, Christ had told him in the desert of Arabia to preach. So he used himself as a prime example. No, God hasn't cast Israel away, including me. God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. Now, you get back to that predestination thing. God had known ahead of time he was going to call a man, and Abraham turned out to be that man, and that he would work through him and provide the Israelite nations, which he did. Now, don't you know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and dig down your altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Now, Elijah at that point was out, I believe when he's referring to, is when he was out on the creek being fed by the ravens, and he looked around and says, there's nobody left but me. And I've got Bathsheba, not Bathsheba, uh, Jezebel trying to kill me. So he felt pretty alone. Hey, we're not too bad off, are we? We've got 20, 25, 30 people. <laughs> not, not just one. But he was feeling pretty lonely there. And knowing he was, his life was in jeopardy is the reason he went out there in the first place. And I find it interesting that God uses this particular example Let's go on and and you'll see what I mean. But what says the answer of God to him? 
he, he made a prayer. says, God, I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me. There won't be anybody left, is what he's implying. Nobody. So God said, all right, I've reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. 7,000 men. Now, Paul uses that here in the New Testament and refers to the early New Testament church in the same breath. Now, is it ironic or coincidental that we may have had 150,000 peak at the Feast of the Tabernacles in Worldwide Church of God, and you take a 10% number from that, and you come up with 15,000, this was 7,000 men. I don't know whether that meant men, women, and children or not, or whether it meant men per se, and then their wives and so on, who might have also been counted, could have been near 15,000. Is that how many are coming? I don't know. I've, I've thought 10% of 150,000, 140,000, whatever it happened to be, might be uh, 14, 15,000. But then I've looked at this and says, well, maybe it's seven. Because there may have been 70,000 converted as opposed to 150,000 men, women, children, dogs, and cats that came to the feast. Who knows? So it's, uh, it's kind of up in the air a bit. But this number is used in this example twice, back with Elijah. And now Paul says the same thing here in verse 5. <clears throat> Even so, then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, we don't know how big the early New Testament church got. We know that right off the bat... Uh, there was one day when there were 3,000, I think, converted, and the next day maybe 5,000. So there's eight right there, and it grew uh, quite a bit, I think, from there, where there were congregations all over, much as maybe it has in this era. But then there was a great falling away then, as there has been now. So God's prophecies get repeated over and over and over again, <clears throat> nothing new under the sun. What has been shall be. And what was then is now occurring as well. So you can rely on the Word of God in faith that that which has been, and you go back and read about in ancient times, will occur again. That's why we can read what happened to Israel in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, and know that we're on safe ground to say exactly what happened then is going to happen now. Because even throughout those prophecies, over and over, it mentions the end times and of Christ returning and so on and so forth. So you know that the biggest and final fulfillment's here at the end. So Paul said it, I mean, he didn't know at that point that it was going to be another 2,000 years. So he was looking as that being the last iteration of the church of God. A remnant according to the election of grace. And it doesn't matter for us sitting here today how many it was, because that era passed, and how many ever were faithful are waiting for the resurrection. So he doesn't have to give us a number of how many were called and how many were 
became church members and then how many were left after the destruction and the falling away. But I would say, based on those Old Testament scriptures, the pattern being there, that probably only about 10% of what had been called into the early New Testament church survived through the whole thing till it was gone. Because there was very, very little left when the Apostle John wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. The apostles were all dead. Uh, most of the church had fallen away. So, he says, even at this present time, a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, remnant means then that he's saying that most Israel was not involved with God. Just a remnant. That becomes important as he goes on down and explains. And if by grace, then is it no more of works. So, he said, he had reserved even in that present time, a certain amount for himself, and uses the example of Elijah and 7,000 as an example of what he means by what he's saying, that there's only a remnant. Again, Elijah was talking of all Israel, right? Not spiritual Israel, but all Israel. It was the priests of Baal of all Israel that he killed. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't there was no church, such thing as a church, So, Elijah was speaking of Israel. And here, in this context, Paul is speaking primarily of physical Israel and physical Gentiles and saying that there's only a small remnant of that physical nation or nations that had been called and kept back for God. Now, he's already explained that unless somebody was sent to preach the Word of God... They wouldn't have waked up. And then he says that this remnant is according to the election of grace, unmerited pardon, goodwill given by God, not because you earned it. And that's what he says. If by grace, then is it no more of works. What had those people done who were sitting there in the audience? Nothing. They had heard from Paul maybe from others that Paul had ordained, I don't know. Uh, And it was only by the mercy and grace of God that these people had heard the truth. So it wasn't anything they'd done. What had you done that was so outstanding that you earned a place in God's church? Can I hear some testimonies? I didn't think so. None of us had done anything worthy of being called. In fact, we'd done some things unworthy of being called as human beings. So, it is by the grace of God, not by any other means. Now, does that mean works are not needed? Well, he explains in many, many places that works are needed. I'll show you my faith by my works, he says. But he wants to make the point that none of you got yourselves here. None of you were so righteous and you learned the truth of God on your own, because you didn't. That's, that's the point. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If you had earned it, if you'd have done something wonderful that got you where you are, then the grace of God isn't really grace because it's something you did on your own. No, we're grateful to God because we do know what we do 
And it was by His mercy that He called us, not by anything we did. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. And there were Pharisees who were not called, but had they been like Paul, they would have thought it was their works that got them there. Wouldn't they? I've been good all my life. Look at all the things I did. I've got them written right here. And therefore, uh, I couldn't help but be called because I've been so good and I've had good works. Now, that's not the way it worked with the Apostle Paul, who's explaining this. He had done all those things and was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and very high in the Pharisaical order. And he got struck down. He wasn't rewarded for all those good works by God saying, Oh, Paul, you've been so wonderful. And, and Christ said, You know, I've been watching you and you're so much like me that I just can't help but call you. No, he struck him down and made him blind. And then he told him, You've been murdering my people. Oh, I thought that was a good work. <laughs> no, that wasn't a good work. You've been killing the people I've been calling. Now cease and desist. And if you'll repent, I'll make you one of them. Now, you know, is that grace and mercy? You know, if there's someone around killing church people, and God struck them down and says, hey, quit that. Uh, Here's what I want you to do. That would be mercy. Certainly would. So it's not your works. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? the, the, The mercy of God had nothing to do with it. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? So ask another question. Israel has not obtained that which he seeks for, but the election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. God opened the eyes of those whom He chose to open and called. And you cannot be called except the Spirit of the Father draw you. So He says the Pharisees, the Israelites, were seeking righteousness, weren't they? And they looked to Moses and Abraham and said, We are righteous, but they're blinded. Didn't Christ call them blind guides? He said they were blind, among other things. But the election has obtained it. The rest were blinded. So physical Israel does not understand. We look around today. We see those who have come to understand the truth, have repented, received God's Spirit, and are part of the elect today. Chosen out of those who were called. And most of Israel has not even been called, much less chosen. And he blinded them on purpose. Didn't Christ himself say, I speak in parables so they might be blinded and deaf and not understand? The Protestants will tell you that he spoke in parables to make the meaning simple and clear. He said, I speak in parables so they can't get what I'm saying and won't get it, and they're blind and deaf. Now, why? Why would God blind people and make them deaf 
to what Christ was teaching. Because he knew that if they truly understood it, they would reject it anyway, a disobedient and gainsaying people, and have to be destroyed eternally if they really understood the spiritual things that he was talking. So he blinded them and made them deaf so he wouldn't have to destroy them. So he's used a special kind of mercy and grace on you and me, hasn't he, by calling us and giving us the truth in hopes that we would repent and obey him and be saved and be part of the bride of Christ. But it is a different type of grace and mercy whereby he has blinded most people so that they may be saved later. So he's, by blinding this nation, he is saving it. Because had they understood Herbert Armstrong and understood today what we're saying, they would have rejected it and had their chance, having understood, and go to eternal damnation. So God is showing mercy on Israel by killing them. I know that may be a hard concept to grasp, but over 90% are going to die for their own good and benefit. And we understand the order of resurrections in such a way to understand how their death now can benefit them later on, because death in this life is nothing. It's eternal death that is the problem. So, He says, you here, Jew and Gentile, are among the elect and have obtained that. The rest were blinded. According as it is written, God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this day. Now, he's quoting uh, all the way back in uh, probably Isaiah where he got that. And David says, so he says, not only was it written in the prophecies, but David also says, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. Now, darkened so they can't see is blindness. So, He says there's more than one witness that God has blinded Israel and that David even prayed that they be blinded. Now, David understood at least a certain amount of the spiritual and of the kingdom of God to come. And even he could see that in the nation whom he ruled over, there were very, very few people who would obey God. It was obvious. So he says, let their eyes be darkened, that they don't see. And therefore they cannot be judged for what they do not know. David understood more than we might grasp that he did. And if you read the Psalms, as you go through there, you become aware that David understood an awful lot. Verse 11, I say then, Apostle Paul speaking, Have they stumbled that they should fall? He says, that's what David prayed. Now, he says, has it occurred? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles 
for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, he's, he's beginning to introduce here that Israel did disobey God, turned from God, and that is going to come to the benefit of you Gentiles. Because he gave it first to the Jew, and they rejected, and were blinded. Now he's giving it to you Gentiles. So he's saying the fact that Israel did not obey is a good thing for you. So, it provoked jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now, he's going to make a comparison here between the Jews and the Gentiles and show that nobody can be vain and egocentric and we'd all better be humbled before God. That's the whole point of what he's saying here. Don't, don't pick at each other. Don't be racist. But realize we all need to be humble before God. That's the theme. That's the context. That's the purpose of what he's saying here because there was strife in that congregation. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my office. So he's going to explain, all right, I was sent here to you Gentiles, to bring you this message. And he's saying, I'm going to call on the office that God gave me and the authority I have, uh, that that's indeed what I was sent to do. So he, he's saying there, I'm not against you guys. I was sent here for you. Now he dresses them down a bit, but he does Israel as well. So he says, don't get the idea that I'm against you just because I'm speaking what I'm speaking. Now, you always have that when there is a racial divide, don't you? Anything you say is racist because of the prejudice that is there. If any of you have been in the South, and even in other parts of the country, and you're talking to somebody where there is a racial divide... And you don't mean anything racial with what you say. It's still taken that way. Right? I mean, there was one of our... Who was it now? It wasn't Clinton. Who was it that made... I think it was one of the presidents that said, uh, You people. And he meant, all of you people. Didn't matter what race. That's what he was trying to say. It was all of you people. But there was a certain color of skin who had had that expression used, speaking of them as a, in a derogatory manner. So anytime you use that expression, they took it that way. So to, a, to someone who is racially sensitive, everything is a racial slur. It's, it's like the divide between the blacks and the whites in this country today. All the blacks, I say all, I mean, is it, never does it mean everybody. But for the most part, it is perceived that the white people think they're better than the black people. And we even have had that, we're better than you. Uh, and 
the black people tend to have a bit of a, an inferiority complex based on history from being treated inferior. And that is a hard thing to heal in, in our experience. And that's why I bring this up in, in what Paul was dealing with. It's very hard to heal that. And even people who are somewhat converted in the church still have difficulty getting that right. And still those perceptions that they grew up with are still there. And it's very difficult to get past. It just is. And you, you have to be very, very careful in what you say. Because uh, people may understand in their minds that no longer do we look at it from a racial standpoint. Because we're all looking to God as our Father. But even though you understand that in your mind, the emotions kind of lag behind. So you still have trouble dealing with it, even though you know better. And we've had problems like that in the church. So when he speaks here, he's speaking to the church. So he's trying to get them to understand, hey, I'm all for you guys. I, I was sent for you. He's not bragging about being an apostle. He's trying to get across to them that he was on their side. He says, if by any means, verse 14, I may provoke them to emulation or copying or imitating them which are my flesh and might save some of them. So he says, I'm coming to speak to you Gentiles. That's, I'm the apostle to them. But I also want to set a good example that some of my own blood might also understand and follow God. Because he was speaking to a racially divided congregation again. For if the casting away of them by the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So he says Israel has departed from God, and now the Gentiles are being called of God. So it's like the Israelites are in that sense dead. But if God through his, Paul's example, could bring some of them back to life spiritually, it's like a resurrection, because they had been dead to God. Same with our nation today. It was called a Christian nation, and no longer is it a Christian nation by whatever standard you want to say. And anyone who claims to be Christian now is under fire, and the powers that be want them dead. So if God calls any out of it at this point, it's like a resurrection from the dead. <laughs> That's what he's saying. So if the world is reconciled, that is the Gentile world, if Israelites wake up, it's like coming back to life. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. So God says Israel was given the truth, he made them a holy nation, called out of God, and then they went their way. And there in Ezekiel 16, he says, you look like Gentiles to me. I don't see any difference. They were dead to God. But he's explaining here to the Gentiles. Now, you know Israel's not obeying God. The Pharisees, the Jews, they're not accepting Christ. And that was the big issue, was whether they accepted Christ or not. And they hadn't. 
Israel or the Gentiles. And he says, now some of you Gentiles have been taught, I was sent to you, I taught you, and now you know who Christ is, and you know who God is, and you're being reconciled to Him. But don't get vain and egocentric, suddenly thinking, I'm better than you. See, here's this Rachel thing. The Jews call the Gentiles dogs. And so you had this, this racial divide and hatred that was there. And now he's starting to call the Gentiles, and he says, now don't you fall into the trap of suddenly saying, now I'm better than you Jews. Because that's what we tend to do as humans. I'm better than you, you're better than me, I'm better than you. There's always that competition. He says, don't go there. He says, if the first fruit be holy, the original Israelites I called, then the whole thing becomes holy, chosen, set apart by God. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. If you have a peach tree that has peach tree roots, then the limbs will produce peaches because the branch comes from the root. And Israel had been the root to begin with from Abraham on. And if some of the branches be broken off, which had happened with Israel, the tree had been pretty well stripped, right? Of obedience to God. And you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree. He, well, he uses olives instead of peaches. That just came to mind. But same principle. Boast not against the branches... But if you boast, you bear not the root, but the root you. So he says, you weren't the root. Israel was the root. And the branches on the olive tree grew from Israel. Then those branches were stripped off, and you are being grafted in to the olive tree. So what are you bragging about? You aren't the root. You're just the branch that was grafted in. And the root is the key. If the root dies, the whole tree dies. Strip off the branches, the tree may survive. So see what I mean? He says up here, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, but I got something I need to tell you. (laughs) He says, don't get all egocentric. You weren't the root. You were not even a branch. But those branches got stripped off and somebody put you together and bound you up and you began to grow and got your sustenance from the root. Paul was of Israelite blood. He was of the root. (coughs) And it was through his preaching that they had begun to be grafted into the root. Verse 19, you will say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. In other words, I'm better than you. Because the only reason those branches were knocked off is so that I might be added to the tree. So their attitude was to put down the Jews and Israelites, thinking that suddenly they had become better than those which had been broken off. You really think there was a racial problem there in the church in Rome? I've never gone through it and looked at it in quite the way we are here. But we're soon going to have a remnant of the people coming from all over the world. And our attitudes had better be right when they get here. 
Verse 20, well, because of unbelief they were broken off. He says, now let's understand why they got stripped off the tree. They didn't believe God. And you stand by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. Understand that that which God called in the first place did not have faith and obedience to God, and even the natural branch was clipped off. So don't you get vain because you got grafted in and think you're better than they were, because if you don't obey, you'll get stripped off too. Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not you. The natural branch should naturally have received more grace and mercy, but because of disobedience, they got hacked off. So why do you think you're better if you got grafted in? Because if you don't obey, you're going to get hacked off too, and probably quicker than they did. Okay, because you weren't the natural branch to start with. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell. Severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. So, they weren't being good. They got kicked out. Now, you got grafted in. You better be good, or the same thing's going to happen to you. Otherwise, you also shall be cut off. Are you once saved, always saved? <laughs> what do you mean cut off? Verse 23, And they also, speaking of the Jews or the Israelites, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So as he, even though Israel disobeyed and were cut off, if they do decide to obey, God will graft them back in. For if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? That's like uh, human body. Now, if you have a problem with an organ in your body or an arm or something, and lay, let's say it gets removed, cut off, amputated. Now, we have a fellow sitting right here whose thumb I saw laying in the palm of his hand and his thumb was only attached by a very small piece of skin. Now, when I saw that, I could have thought, uh-oh, that thumb's gone, and I could have just jerked that little piece of skin loose and thrown it away for him, or clipped it with a knife or something. And But would it be easier to take his thumb laying there and put it back and have it grow back or to go get somebody else's thumb and bring it over and try to get it to grow back which would be the easiest that's all he's saying 
if Israel was part of the olive tree and they got cut off, it's much easier to graft in that which is the same. It's easier to graft a peach tree to a peach tree or an olive tree to an olive tree than it is an apple tree to a persimmon. It just doesn't work that well. So he says, if, if they were Israelites to start with, they would easily go back into the tree much easier than you do because it's a natural fit. It's, it's the same wood. It's the same sustenance. It's the same thing. So he's telling them, okay, you've been called, but uh, let's temper our, not enthusiasm, but our racism. And who's better than who? Verse 25, For I would not, brethren, and he calls them brothers here, he had accepted the fact that he, a Jew, was a brother to these formerly Gentile dogs. So he's upgraded his position as a Jew to say, we're brothers. So even though he's getting on them, he's, he's saying, you're my brothers. You've been grafted in. I would not, brothers, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So he says, he called Israel to start with. They were the natural olive tree. They disobeyed, so he cut them off and set them aside. And now he's working with you in a way that he never did before. There had been a mixed multitude sometimes that went with Israel, like when they came out of Mitzrayim. But they weren't really part of Israel. Or God had not called them to be part of Israel. They just came along. But he says now, he set them aside and he's working primarily with the Gentiles. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile. But he says that blindness is going to be removed. They're, they're blind in part for a while until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then they are going to be basically, in that sense, spiritually resurrected, which is what he introduced earlier, and be back to be part of it again. So don't think you're going on forward and now you're the chosen people and Israel is forgotten. No, they're going to, be, they're going to come back after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then verse 26, he says... And so all Israel shall be saved. So if you're getting a little high-minded there, thinking Israel's, God's done with Israel, now he's, now he's a Gentile God, forget that. Israel's going to be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So the blindness that has occurred in Israel through the years is going to be removed. And then they will turn and be saved. So remember what I said a little earlier about how God is showing His mercy on this nation by killing most of it. Is because after they have physically died and they come up in the second resurrection, they will have a whole different attitude. And then they'll say, I think it would be a good idea if I obeyed God. 
See? And then they'll be saved. For this is my covenant to them, when I shall take away their sins. Now, he hasn't. I got an email from someone just the other day. said, all this Kavanaugh thing is going on, and and, uh, our nation is going down, and we need to send messages out to ask them to repent so that our nation can be saved. And I said, it's too late. That was my response. The judgment has already been made. Israel is going down. And God even said through Jeremiah, pray not for this people because they're not going to repent. He says that of the rebels of Anatoth right there in Jeremiah 10 or 9. says the same thing. Or no, I guess it's 11. says the same thing. It's not going to happen. They won't repent. They're going down. And he says it of not just in the church, but of the nation. So I said, you're wasting your breath. When God says don't even pray, God means what He says. It's too late. The judgment has already been rendered. The prophecies were written thousands of years ago, and you and I are not going to change it. And I said, you could even be being found presumptuous in calling yourself to be the one that goes out to tell them to repent, because God has always done that through those whom He's commissioned to do it with. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the apostles. That is history. And it is what's going to happen again. I said, Herbert Armstrong didn't preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end came. He died 30 years ago. The end hasn't come. He did a calling, but he did not fulfill Matthew 24, 14 like he thought was his commission. But God sometimes lets you misunderstand so that you go ahead and do with zeal what he wants to get done, even though you think you have a different goal than that which God really has in mind. He is capable of using us in spite of ourselves. <laughs> you know? And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Well, he has to be speaking here of a future resurrection because all those Israelites that have died from Abraham on down who were not in God's good graces are lost unless there is a way to yet save them. And that is through either the millennium if they survive the Holocaust or the great white throne judgment if they're already dead. And he'll turn away their ungodliness. For this is my covenant to them when I shall take away their sins. He's not taking them away now. He won't take them away till they repent. But it is coming. So he's saying don't you Gentiles get all excited that you're, you've replaced Israel because that isn't what you're here for. You haven't replaced Israel. You've been grafted into spiritual Israel. And God is going to spiritually save even physical Israel ultimately. Because he's speaking in terms of New Covenant here, not, not Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament a lot, but he's speaking of the church then under the New Covenant. So he's speaking in spiritual terms of ultimate salvation. <clears throat> As, verse 28, As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. He says, in terms of the gospel that I'm preaching, he says, the Jews around you, the Israelites around you, are your enemies for your sake. That you might 
turn to God, who is your friend. But the Jews are your enemies. But as touching the election, that is, those who are being converted, they are beloved for, their, for, uh, for the Father's sake. So he says, the Jews have been your enemies. They've called you dogs. But now that you're turning to God, that works to your good. Because since he has turned them away and stripped them off, you have a chance. Now, doesn't that fit with what Christ said in Matthew 23? He says, he's speaking to the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, and he says, I'll have nothing more to do with you until you accept those whom I have sent. Well, the apostles were the ones that were sent. And those that they would ordain down through history, he said, would be ordained and be part of that tree of leadership and authority. So he basically disfellowshipped the Jews, is the term I use, right there. He said, I'll have nothing more to do with you to you except me and those I sent. And they haven't to this day. If anything, they're worse today than they were then. And he had some pretty bad things to say about them even back then. So he says, you're having your chance because they did not obey. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So you Gentiles sitting here in the chairs today said, uh, aren't here because you uh, deserved it and because you were better than the Jews. No, he's called you for his purposes and you didn't repent until you were called, until you had it explained. And then you understood that there's a place for the, there's a chair for the Gentiles in the house of Israel, the church of God. And it wasn't anything you did. It's that God has a plan for all mankind, including the Gentiles. Do you think God would have made the different races through Adam and Eve and brought them through the flood if he didn't intend them to be saved someday? Because all human beings are made in the image of God, and all human beings are loved by God. God so loved the whole world that He sent His Son. So, Paul is saying, God intended all along to call the Gentiles. But it wasn't because you were so good that He did. So don't get vain. For as you in times past have not believed God yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. He's called you in place of them right now. But don't think for a minute if they repent, He won't bring them back. And He just explained that, they, that He will bring them back. And all Israel shall be saved. Even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they may also may believe, obtain mercy. So Israel has been kicked out. The Gentiles have been brought in. And if, God, if, if the, is, the physical Israelites begin to see God bless these Gentile peoples in a spiritual level, maybe they'll come back. So through your faith, you're an example to that which was original that will be brought back. 
so you do good for each other. For God has concluded them, speaking of Israel, all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Now he says it in so many words, what I mentioned earlier. It's God's mercy that is causing this nation to mostly perish. So that he might have mercy on all of them. They don't understand, therefore he can't judge them eternally when they didn't understand what it was all about. But he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. In other words, who to thunk it? But you got this world that has gone completely astray from God. And he and his son, before the foundation of the world was ever begun, knew what would happen here. And it was with their knowledge and design that the different races were made. Now, wouldn't life have been much simpler had God only made one race? No matter which, black, yellow, brown, green, wouldn't matter. But wouldn't life have been simpler throughout history if everybody had been the same? But would it have helped? Human nature is the same no matter who it is. Now, they all had still one language at Babel, right? Different races, but same language. And they were having trouble. That was not a very good society. So God gave them different languages and scattered them abroad so that they could not become like God. I think there must have been high technology in those days, just like now. We're going into artificial intelligence and robots and all this kind of thing, and we want these robots to be able to make organs for our bodies that will fit, and then we can live forever. Well, that is the elite can, but the peasants can be replaced by robots who will do what the master says better than humans. But we're getting to the point we're trying to play God and live forever apart from God. And they wanted to go where God was in the days of Babel. And God stopped it. And he's going to stop it again very soon because mankind is, is getting in line with some of the laws of the universe that could cause a very, very warped longevity. And God knows that. And He does not want us to have longevity in misery and war and strife and hate. So He's going to put a stop to all this <clears throat> before we get quite to that point. Uh, so He left them all blind and deaf, that is, in unbelief, that He might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, I read this, but the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. A man is trying to find solutions to the world's problems. Uh, going to Mars and having a new society there, they think, might solve it. <laughs> he, 
you really think we can divorce ourselves from ourselves and do better on Mars than we have here? I think not. Human nature is the same no matter where you go. And yet God had this figured out way ahead of time. And He can work with the different races, the different peoples, with everything that has transpired. And He can make it all turn out good. Now man has his ideas of how to make this all turn out good. Where are we headed? Oblivion. Because all of our devices and all our schemes and all our science and all of our inventions and everything we do is making the place that we live in untenable. Unable to be lived in. And if he doesn't intervene, all flesh will die. He's going to cut it short so there'll be some flesh saved alive. So given Satan and man, we're headed for oblivion. It's all over within a few years. God will cut it short and He will make all His plans work out and Paul's words here will be fulfilled. All Israel shall be saved and the Gentiles will be included and most of them will be saved also in spite of ourselves. God can overcome racism. God can overcome stupidity and ignorance and blindness. And He can overcome human nature and turn people from grasping, greedy, self-centered egomaniacs into serving, loving, kind followers of Christ. He can do that. We're guinea pigs in the process. If He can turn us, He can turn others. Can He turn you? Can He turn me? We better believe He can. We better believe in His capacity to bring salvation to us. That's what faith is all about. For who has known the mind of the Eternal, or who has been His counselor? Who, who advises Him? There isn't anybody around that can say anything to God that would do him any good because he already knows far more than any who might try to advise him on things. Do you ever try to advise God on anything? Yeah, you have. You've tried to advise him on what you wanted in your life or what you wanted in your neighbor's life or whatever it is that you wanted. And he said, uh, he says, no. He says, I'll do anything, but it has to be within my will. Not your will, but my will be done. And that's part of the model prayer. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. So, then, if we're going to pray or counsel God on what we want done, and we think we're right, this is what needs to be done, God. I'm praying because I want this. We've all done that. We're trying to counsel Him. We're trying to tell Him what's best for us. Now, you didn't think of it that way when He said this. But that's what we do. And He says, uh, Nah, I don't see it that way. I'm not going to answer that one that way. Oh, my answer is no, by the way. So He tells us, get within His will. That's what counts. And then when we get within His will, things start happening properly. And then our prayers get answered because they are according to His will. 
If it's against his will, he's simply not going to do it. So it's on us to come to think according to the way he thinks and what he wants done, not what we want done. Because he knows what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. So can you counsel God? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed to him again? We gave something to God, and now he's obligated to give us something back? Now it's the other way around. He called us. Now we are called upon to give him something back. But we get in the mode of, give me God. Here's what I want. Here's what I wish. Here's what I desire. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's the master? Who's the potter? And who's the clay? You are supposed to be answering to me, not me answering to you. Get the cart before the horse. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So be it. That's the way it is. So he's been using this chapter to explain to Jew and Gentile, none of you are any better than anybody else. God's better than us all. So quit comparing yourselves among yourselves, for it is not wise, and start looking to God for the answers that only He can give. That was his message to a divided racial, uh, racially divided church. Look to God, and don't any of you get vain, because God can save you all, and you can't save yourselves. So look to Him who has all glory and might, and don't think you can tell him how it ought to be. Uh, you listen to him and do what he says, and then everything will be a-okay. That's the message of chapter 11.